We find ourselves this morning back in 1 John chapter 5, and we'll be covering verses 6 through 12 in our time together today. So as we begin, let us begin there. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. There John says this. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. This is the word of God. Please be seated. If you have ever followed any trial on TV, or perhaps more likely for most of us, if you've ever watched a courtroom drama on TV, not quite the same thing, but either way, you understand the very important role that witnesses and the testimonies they give on the stand play in presenting any kind of argument in a courtroom setting. You understand that each of those witnesses perhaps has only witnessed or observed a few passing moments or a few minutes in the time frame that is being examined, but that as those witnesses' observations are are tied together, eventually, hopefully, they're able to present one unified overarching narrative. That narrative, of course, is intended to present a solid case regarding the defendant or regarding the, the individual who is simply defending themselves. Each of those witnesses then plays an incredibly important part in showing the fact that this story is not made up. It's not just the gut feeling of the state or the criminal defense. It is verifiable truth. Thus, each witness's story must be carefully examined. Each witness themselves must be considered whether whether or not they are um, verifiable, whether or not they are um, reliable witnesses. But in the end... Assuming those witnesses are reliable and assuming that their stories can be tied together, the argument and the narrative is quite um, convincing. And it is based upon those witnesses, ultimately, that the argument is made and the decision is come to by the judge. John, in writing this letter to believers and in defending the Christian faith, understands the importance that witnesses play. And he understands that his own subjective experiences, although they are significant as an apostle, are not enough to prove his case. And so as to prove his case, to try to remind his readers why they can be so confident in the Christ who's presented in scriptures rather than the Christ who is presented by a variety of false teachers, John gives us this text with three powerful witnesses. Three witnesses, all of whom are in agreement regarding one overarching narrative, one person, Jesus Christ. And as John so powerfully reminds us today, the decision or the response to that story really boils down to one of two choices. You can either accept the story of John, accept the testimony of Scripture, or you can deny it. 
And either way, you are welcoming in upon your life eternal consequences. And so I pray today as we go through this text that we might carefully examine these witnesses. We might carefully question whether or not the story of Christ is truly all that reliable and and ask how this is tied together. As we do so, for those of us who are believers, I pray this might be a tremendous encouragement as it's a reminder of the fact that our faith does not rest on some subjective claim, but upon objective evidence and witnesses that are in fact reliable. And for all of us, I pray that we might come to the proper response ultimately of this text that we might understand that the point of this testimony is not just for mere encouragement, but it is intended to cause us to believe and to respond with dependence and faith. With that being said, before we delve into exploring these three witnesses, let me open our time in prayer and we'll dive in. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for yet another opportunity to examine the words of John here in 1 John 5. God, already you've given us so many truths that have been so incredibly encouraging in the first, first four chapters of this text. And I pray that this morning might be just as encouraging. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, that as we consider the words of John, we might be reminded of why we can be so confident in the claims of Christianity. Might we be reminded of the fact that our faith is not tied to some subjective claims, but to an objective truth, truth that is upheld by historical events, truth that is upheld ultimately by the Father. And so, God, I pray that we might be encouraged this morning For those who are here today who do not yet know you, God, who have rejected your Son, at least up until this moment, I pray today you open their eyes the truth. Holy Spirit, cause them to believe this morning. Cause them to see that life can be found, but it can only be found in the Son, Jesus Christ. As always, God, we pray that you remove all distractions from us, God. Might this time be spent in a manner that's glorifying to you, pleasing to you in a manner that brings the proper praise to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray all of these things. Amen. Well, as we pick up our text today, you will perhaps remember we're picking it up after a pretty grand claim that John has just made. For in verse 5 of chapter 5, he has claimed that those who have placed their faith in Jesus have overcome the entire world regardless of the authorities of this world under which we live, regardless of the amount of persecution we suffer on, John says, they can't touch us. They cannot possibly overcome the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question that must be answered, of course, on the heels of such a a dramatic claim is, well, who is this Jesus Christ? And how can we be certain that we have the the right Jesus Christ, the, the Jesus Christ who truly can save? In answer to that question, John, in verse 6, speaks of three particular witnesses that all identify Jesus as the true Christ, that is, Jesus as he's presented in Scripture. We see those three witnesses listed in verse 6, where again we read, This, that is Jesus, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. That is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. The question we have to ask, of course, is who are these witnesses that John lists off? The most obvious one is the Spirit, and we'll get to him here in a moment. But those first two cause a bit of confusion, this language of the water and the blood, for John hasn't really used this type of language before. And so many commentators for centuries have asked, okay, what are these witnesses? What exactly is John referring to? Particularly when it comes to the water that he cites. Some commentators over the centuries have suggested this speaks to the sacrament of communion. The idea that that 
as we take communion, the water and the blood are, are symbols through which Jesus comes to visit us. In a similar facet, when they interpret water, they, they think of it as in terms of our own personal baptism. Again, some experience in which Jesus comes to us. As we consider it in the text, however, I think the most likely interpretation of John's language is an interpretation that sees the water and the blood as both being historical events in the life of Jesus himself. As such, I believe the water here speaks to the baptism of Jesus Christ. Baptism that you can read about in a few different gospel accounts. But for the sake of our time this morning, I ask you to turn back to the gospel account in Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, we have one of these powerful presentations of the water. And what the water witnessed regarding Christ. There in Matthew chapter 3, we see that John the Baptist has already been active in baptizing many people. We spoke of this way back when in preparation for Easter. Perhaps some of you were here for that. If you were, you recall that John the Baptist's ministry was revolving around this idea of preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And in order to prepare people, he called them to to be baptized as an act of repentance from sin, to prepare for the coming king. Yet in the midst of baptizing these sinners and preparing the way for Jesus, we see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, that it is Jesus himself who came to be baptized. We'll pick up the narrative there in Matthew 3, 13. We read, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus, answering him, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. It's an incredible picture. A beautiful event that unfolds, and we do not have the time to explore nearly all the details that we could unpack here in these verses. But as we see in this text, we see Jesus Christ coming to John, and, and John is rightly confused. For John understands that baptism was supposed to prepare the way for the king, and if Jesus is the king, well then what does he need to be prepared for? And so he asks Jesus, why why would I ever baptize you, Jesus? And the response of Jesus is perhaps at first somewhat confusing, but ultimately falls in line with so much of what Jesus spoke. For he tells John the Baptist, permitted at this time, for, in, for this way is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. If you read through the Gospels, you are familiar with that language of fulfillment. For so much, if not everything that Jesus did was in fulfillment of those long-held promises that God had made his people. Long-held promises regarding the Messiah who would do specific things. Who would act in certain ways. And so when Jesus acts, when he speaks, he does so always in fulfillment of promises. In this particular moment, Jesus is fulfilling the promise that there would be this Messiah who would come in and stand as the representative of the people of God. And so in order to fulfill that promise to be a proper representative of the people, Jesus does that which is required by all of God's people. He steps into the waters, and in so doing, he voluntarily identifies himself with those sinful people and with their sin. 
Because Jesus came as that final sacrifice. He came as this second Adam, as this new representative. As Jesus fulfills all righteousness and fulfills that promise, we see he does not do so simply as the Son. He does so as the Son is blessed by God the Father and God the Spirit. For as he comes up out of the water, we of course are are shown that it is the Holy Spirit who descends upon him. Thus the Holy Spirit is empowering the Son for the Messiah's ministry. And ultimately, we see the voice of the Father offering this grand blessing. As he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When John in 1 John speaks of the water testifying to Jesus, then he's speaking of the water in essence witnessing this event. As if the water could see with its eyes Jesus, the Son of God, being baptized. As if the water with its ears could hear the voice of God proclaiming, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ. It's a beautiful picture, an amazing picture that speaks to Christ's humility. It speaks to Christ's willingness to do whatever it takes to fulfill all righteousness. It speaks to this glorious picture of representation. And it seems, as we turn back to 1 John, that even the false teachers uh, seem to at least in part accept this testimony. That is to say, they accepted the fact that Jesus was baptized. We See this hinted at in the language of John when he reminds us that this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with also blood. The meaning, it seems, being that even the false teachers could see a certain beauty, certain glory in that amazing event. And I think all of us can see the beauty that, that anyone could appreciate there. For here we have this picture of purity. Here we have this picture of humility. Here we have a picture of representation that that is a little less offensive than the representation that John is ultimately about to speak to. It's the representation that, that anyone can stand behind. And it is, as such, the first witness that stands on the stage to testify the truth of Jesus. Yet as John continues, he reminds us that that water, that baptism, is just the, the first chapter in the ministry of Christ. It's just the first step that Jesus takes. And so in order to have a a complete story told of Jesus, you need more than that event. You need, namely, the second witness. That witness being the blood. Now, if we understand that the water speaks to that historical event of baptism, I think all of us can quickly understand what the blood speaks to, can't we? It's the cross, of course. And if you've read through the book of 1 John, this should not surprise any of us. For John has spoken a great deal of the blood of Jesus. Time and time again, John has reminded his readers that this was ultimately the entire reason why Jesus came. Not simply to get baptized, but to act as our propitiation, as our atoning sacrifice. He said it as early as the book of 1 John in chapter 1. If you just turn back a couple of pages, you see this first reference, or one of the first references to the blood. For in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, John said, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Shortly thereafter, in chapter 2, verse 2, John says, He himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation, again, speaking to sacrifice, to blood, to death. A little bit later and perhaps more recently in our own study, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, 
John, yet again, says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It should not surprise us then that when John comes to chapter 5 and speaks of the witnesses, the reality of Christ, that he again brings in language of the blood of Jesus. Yet as he does this, we must understand that unlike the baptism of Christ, this language of blood brought with it great controversy in John's day. For it was that atonement, that execution, that the false teachers very quickly rejected. For all those false teachers could perhaps believe in the idea of of the Son of God being baptized, they could not believe or wrap their minds around the idea that the Son of God would be executed. And so they believed instead that perhaps the Holy Spirit left Jesus on the cross before his death, before the execution. Many other false teachers in that day would have joined these individuals. And in fact, any unbeliever in John's day would have understood that offense. The Apostle Paul himself speaks of how offensive that blood of Jesus was in 1 Corinthians where he says, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, this idea of crucifixion. To the Greeks, it's utterly offensive. It's it's ridiculous. It's foolishness. Who could possibly believe in this picture of, of a son loved by the father and yet being executed by the father, ultimately? It's a controversy that did not end in John's day either, is it? For we still live in a world in which this language of blood is is downright offensive. And so still today, there are countless false teachers that will suggest that this blood is is a metaphor. It's not real, it's just intended to be a picture. A few years back, a very popular false teacher by the name of Rob Bell spoke of this idea. In an attempt to scrub the blood away from the gospel, he said that, that God used language of sacrifice because it was so culturally relevant. And his idea was that, that we live in a day now where sacrifices aren't part of our everyday life, so we shouldn't speak of that blood anymore. Rob Bell had a huge following, and for good reason. He was a great speaker. And a bloodless gospel, at the, at the first glance, looks far more attractive than a bloody gospel. Even for those of us who are believers, I think we should acknowledge the fact that this language should be at least somewhat discomforting for us, at least at first glance, is it not? It should cause us all to take a step back at certain points and wonder why the, the pages of Scripture are so bloody, so violent? This last week, as Andy mentioned, we had VBS. VBS is a great, great week in which we're able to share the gospel with kids, a great way where we can practically make disciples of the next generation. And I had the great opportunity of helping out and singing songs and acting goofy with kids. And, and yet even I, as a pastor, as I sang those songs, at times was struck by the language of those songs that these kids sang. For there were moments where I would look around and I would see these little kids speaking of the precious blood of the lamb being spilt on their behalf. And as I heard them sing that, there's part of me that thinks, oh, that is creepy sounding, isn't it? And in fact, at moments where I would be sharing the gospel with some of our kids, it was clear who, who amongst them were not well churched, who amongst them had not heard this story, for they were rightly confused and, and bothered by this language of the Son of God being executed and spilling his blood on their behalf. This language is uncomfortable. For it's language that speaks of judgment. It's language that immediately speaks to our own impurity. It's language that immediately shows how unworthy we are. And as such again, we, like those false teachers in 1 John, can perhaps relate to the reason why it's tempting to have a bloodless gospel. 
And yet, as John has reminded us, and more importantly, as Jesus Christ himself spoke so clearly throughout his own ministry, without that blood, there is no gospel. And so there's a reason why when you read through the gospel accounts that Jesus speaks constantly of death. He regularly speaks of being a sacrifice. If you consider the gospel of John itself, you see many opportunities where Jesus speaks to this. You see this in language such as John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, when Jesus speaks of himself as being the good shepherd, he says in chapter 10 verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, he speaks of his death. This language is so familiar to many of us that we miss how violent this imagery is. Yet even we cannot ignore the violent imagery if we consider the language of Jesus earlier. In John chapter 6, in fact, turn back with me, if you will, to John 6. For it's important, again, to see just how central of a role the second witness played even in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There in John chapter 6, is Jesus is in a dispute with Jewish leaders. He says these words, beginning in John 6, verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And at this point, you can imagine Jesus thinking, Okay, I need, to, I need to tone down the language here. I don't want to run off anyone by talking about flesh. And yet Jesus just ramps it up. For in verse 53, we see Jesus said to them, Truly, I truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Again, this is language that perhaps many of us have heard before, but it shouldn't take a great amount of imagination to understand why this language would be so shocking to those original believers. It's not that hard to imagine why this language still is so shocking to unbelievers today. There's a reason why in the early church, Christians were accused of, being, um, of, of eating the flesh of other humans, of being cannibals. This was actually an accusation leveled against the early church, for they understood Christians talked about drinking blood and eating flesh. And so Romans thought, oh my goodness, these are terrifying people. And so yet again, the question is, why all this language of blood? Well, the reason for that, of course, is because Scripture clearly teaches that without that blood, there's no remission of sins. Without that sacrifice, there's no purity. Without that act of Jesus Christ being executed on the cross, we are all still hopelessly lost. And so while John's message is offensive, and while that imagery of blood is still offensive and difficult to wrap our minds around today, we understand that in order to have the gospel, you need both that baptism and that blood. You need both that image of Jesus identifying himself with the people, but then taking on the sins of those people as a result. And apart from both these witnesses working together, that is the witnesses of, of water and the blood, there is no complete story being told. And so John reminds his readers and reminds us, this is Christ, the one who came both in water in his baptism and in blood in that atoning sacrifice. And yet again, at this point in time in the story, it would be easy to perhaps shrug off these two witnesses. 
It would be easy to attribute these historical events to some outdated mode of religion. And that is when the third witness comes into play. That is when, in essence, the star witness takes the stand. For John reminds us that it is not simply blood and water that cry out the name of Jesus. It is the Son, or it is the Spirit himself that testifies. For again, we see that third witness in verse 6, where John says it is the Spirit who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. Here's the third witness. That third witness whose identity is undeniable at this point in time in 1 John. For John has spoken time and time again of the Holy Spirit. And the role that he plays in every life of, of the believer. We've seen earlier in 1 John. The role that this Spirit plays in opening our eyes to the truth. We've seen the role of the Spirit already in 1 John and, and passages like 2.20 and 3.24 and 4.6 as being the one who preserves us, the one who allows us to understand, the one who speaks through us, the one who encourages us, the one who brings us confidence. This is the Spirit who ultimately exists in this case for the purpose of testifying the same message of Jesus Christ. And one cannot deny this message or deny his reliability because, as John reminds us, this Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He cannot deny the truth. He cannot speak around it. He can only speak that which is true, that which is according to God. And so just as the water testifies of the baptism of Christ... And just as the blood testifies the reality of the atonement and the fact that the Father was present there blessing that event, so too the Spirit comes into play and he ties it all together. And he shows this one story is this one cohesive declaration being proclaimed regarding this nature and mission of Jesus Christ. And it is that declaration that John so loudly proclaims in verses 7 through 9 where again he says, there are these three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. John reminds us that those three witnesses are unified in the story they're telling. They are unified in their one-hearted, one-minded proclamation regarding the nature of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And there is significance in the language that John uses. For when John speaks of these three witnesses being agreement, he's reminding his people, he's reminding us that there is power when you have a multitude of witnesses all saying the same thing. The significance of that statement can be found as far back in passages such as Deuteronomy 19. Those of you who do not have Deuteronomy 19 memorized will perhaps be good to note the fact that it is in Deuteronomy 19.15 that we read these words. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. We have the same pattern throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, even today in our modern society, we all recognize the fact that you can't hang everything upon the witness really of just one person. For then it just becomes a, a classic he said, she said argument, right? Now you need a multitude of witnesses. And in this case, John says we have that multitude. We have the, the blood, we have the water, we have the Holy Spirit of God himself testifying in agreement regarding this nature of Christ, regarding this pure gospel message. It's the message that, that the Spirit proclaimed at baptism. 
It's the message that is proclaimed with the crucifixion and ultimately resurrection, and it's the message that was continuing to be proclaimed through the Spirit by believers in John's day. That testimony. And while these are the three witnesses that John mentions, we of course understand in Scripture that there are many other proofs we can point to to speak of, of the verifiable reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself spoke of the fact that there is a mountain of witnesses that all speak to his true nature. You find that claim of Christ back again in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, Jesus, in defending himself, speaks of the witnesses of Scripture. He speaks of the witness of Moses who wrote the law in expectation of the Messiah. He speaks of the witness of his own works, his own deeds. But ultimately, most importantly, Jesus spoke to the witness and the testimony of the one who ties it all together, the one who stands behind it all, that one being God the Father. For Jesus himself in John chapter 5, verse 37 says this, The Father who sent me, he has testified of me. Speaking to these Jewish leaders, Jesus says, You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. The reason why a testimony as old as Moses can be tied into a testimony at baptism, can be tied into a testimony at atonement, can be tied into the testimony of every believer here in 2021 is because it is the Almighty Father who stands behind that testimony. And it is he who in history has declared that which we read earlier at his baptism. He has declared definitively, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's no taking that back from the father. There's no denying the testimony of the father at the baptism, just as there's no denying the testimony of the father in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For again, it is ultimately that resurrection that clearly speaks to the fact that it was the Father who was at work in all this. This was the Father's plan. This was the Father's blessing. This was indeed truly the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. As John speaks of these witnesses then, and as he speaks of that unified declaration, not just between the blood and the water, not just between the Spirit and the water, but ultimately between the water and the blood and the Spirit of God and the Father, he reminds us something that we all desperately need to be reminded of all the time, and that is the fact that, again, the claims of Christianity do not rest on the subjective claims of a few individuals. So oftentimes, when you hear critics of the early church, they, they drum up this ludicrous story that suggests that Christianity was just the, the brainchild of a few disciples looking for a following. That is the most ridiculous claim you could ever possibly make. These disciples never claimed this truth based upon their own personal experiences. No, they spoke a truth that they knew would get themselves executed, but they spoke it because they knew it to be true, because of the evidence that was before their eyes, because of the Spirit who opened their eyes to that reality. The disciples knew what John ultimately is getting at here as we come to our final point. That this verifiable, objective truth of Christ ultimately leaves us with one of two choices. You either reject it or you accept it. We see those two choices in crystal clear manner in verses 10 through 12. Follow along with me again as we see those two choices. 
There again, John says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made himself or has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. Testimony is this that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Yet again, John reminds us that this leaves us all with two choices. Rejection or acceptance. Denial or belief. Regarding that first option, rejection, there are inevitably many reasons people might cite why they reject this message. We've noted some of those reasons in John's own day, haven't we? For in John's day, this was a culturally offensive message. It was a foolish message. One that in no way would make you look intelligent. One that would in no way make you look immediately kind or accepting. But one that required you to put your faith in something that was utterly offensive. Whether you were Jew or Greek. And so many people, the false teachers included, rejected it because this seemed so foolish, so simplistic. Not much has changed today. For many people reject the Christian gospel as it's been presented here for the exact same reasons. It's still offensive. It still sounds just as ridiculous to unbelievers today as it has sounded since day one. And so there are many unbelievers who say... I just can't believe in something that sounds so childish or that sounds so violent and graphic and gruesome. And many other unbelievers will reject it, not necessarily on those grounds, but, but because of difficult circumstances they've come through, difficult things they've seen. Perhaps it's the hypocrisy of the church. There are many people that would say, I, I want to believe in Jesus, but, but there have been some Christians who have been so cruel to me so mean, so graceless. So how could I ever possibly believe in, in something that these monsters themselves believe? As I list off those reasons, please do not think that, that I'm trying to just shrug off these personal experiences. For the fact is that many unbelievers, perhaps many of you in here today, have experienced gruesome things. Things that would cause any person to, to question the reality of the faith, especially if they come at the hands of professing believers. I understand that. And I've spoken to enough unbelievers to know those claims are, are not made lightheartedly. They are made through tears. But regardless of the reasons why you reject an unbeliever, please take very seriously the results that John presents. For John reminds you, you're not simply rejecting a group of people. You're not trying to reject some bad experience. He reminds us that ultimately you are rejecting ob objective proof. Even more so, you're rejecting God. For again, John speaking to that says, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. The result of that rejection is, according to verse 12, death itself. It is that which he defines earlier as darkness. It is embracing a kingdom that is decaying. It is walking the primrose path to hell for all eternity. 
And regardless of the reasons why you reject Christ, please know that the ultimate result of that is hell. It is damnation. It is wrath. Because it's a rejection of God. And so, unbeliever, I beg you, please ask your questions. Please tell me why you can't accept the teachings of Christ. I, I, I want you to tell me these things. I want you to tell me how horrible other Christians have been. I will gladly listen to that and I will say I am sorry for those horrible experiences but I will also eagerly beg you to look not to other Christians but ultimately to the evidence of Christ himself. And so unbeliever, please hear me when I say come to Christ. Come to him not because of your own personal experiences but because of the objective reality that Christ has presented to us in Scripture. Come to him because of the witnesses of the water and the blood and the spirit. Come to him now, today. For my fellow believers in Christ, we remember that the other response to this testimony, again, is not just rejection, but it is belief, it is acceptance. Again, speaking to this reality, in verse 11, John says, this testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what a glorious reminder it is that we believe because the Spirit has opened our eyes. What a glorious reminder this is of the fact that our faith does not rest in our own subjective experience. It does not rest in our own ability to define the faith on our own terms but it rests in this basic, simplistic, objective reality of Christ. That he is the Christ. He is the Son of God who took away your sins, who took away my sins by dying on the cross for our sins, by being raised again to new life. And if we simply, or because we have simply accepted that, we now have the testimony within us we have eternal life that cannot be taken away. It's an eternal life that does not simply have implications for the future. It has immediate, present implications. It changes us daily. Jesus speaks to the glorious reality of that eternal life. In John chapter 10, a passage we spoke of earlier, but again, a passage I want to turn to again. In John 10, Jesus, speaking of this eternal life, says this, John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do we realize the life we've been given in the Son is a life that has these immediate ramifications? It is a life that Jesus describes as abundant. For it is a life that's lived in fellowship with the Father. It's a life that's lived in communion with the almighty of creation. And it's a life that brings with it a brand new family of brothers and sisters who sit around you this morning. A family whose existence guarantees you will never be alone. For you have those who love you, who will take care of you, who have those who care for you, who bring your concerns before the almighty loving father on our behalf. What a glorious truth. What an unbelievably gracious result. And all because of the testimony of the Son. All because of the Father's gracious will for us. 
The reason why we can be confident then in a statement like 1 John 5, 5, the reason why we can know for certain that those who believe in Jesus have overcome the world is because those who believe in Jesus have been brought into communion with the Almighty Father whose power cannot be outmanned and outgunned. The reason why you can go so confident is because this testimony of Jesus, this gospel, is true historically and it is true for all eternity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us rejoice in the simplicity of this faith. Let us rejoice in the fact that it is this gospel we present. And let us be quick to present this simple gospel to those around us. As we close our word in prayer again, if you're an unbeliever today, please, I pray, I beg of you to come to us after the service, to speak of your concerns, to speak of your convictions, and to again hear this Christ. I beg that you place your faith in the Son today and as such that you will find life. That being said, let me close this in prayer as the band returns. Father in heaven, we again thank you for today. God, there is such beauty in the simplicity of this testimony. Such beauty in the fact that you give us life purely as a result of belief. Not because we have been granted some great vision. Not because we've proven ourselves through our own experiences. But because it was your will to send your son, Jesus Christ, who was baptized, who was crucified, and who rose again and who reigns today. Father, I pray that those of us who know you might be encouraged by the simplicity of this message today. I pray that those of us who know you might remember that we can be certain that we have the true Christ, the true Son of God that we proclaim. For those who are here who are unbelievers, God, again, I pray for their salvation. Save them today, God. Open their eyes to this beautiful and glorious truth. And cause us all as a result of this to walk in confidence daily, knowing that just as the past is certain, so too is our future, God. We love you, Father, and we praise you, Jesus Christ. And it is in your name that we're able to come before the Father, and it is in your name that we pray, it is in your name that we sing our songs of worship this morning. Amen.